Hello, and welcome to part two of our episode discussing ransomware and how to avoid falling victim, featuring Carlton Fields' partner and cyber attorney, Jack Clabby, and FTI Senior Managing Director, Ron Yearwood. Welcome back, gentlemen. To thwart the ransomware attackers, Norsk Hydro enlisted some outside help. They engaged with Microsoft's cybersecurity response team. And they also had the ability to engage the government of Norway's cybersecurity center. And they set up three teams to investigate the virus and the extent of the data corruption, continue day-to-day business operations, and rebuild the computer (laughs) network. Well, I know neither of you actually worked in this matter. What exactly does searching for the presence of the virus across the network and tens of thousands of user accounts consist of? Very good question. This can really be a complex question and answer depending upon a few factors that go into the equation. So the type of malware used, the adversary, who who the bad guys are and what their purpose was, just a simple quick hit as in target of opportunity or something more like the the Norse incident was, and the client, how, how sophisticated, how prepared are they? In short, Every potential trace of the ransomware has to be addressed to bring the system and the network back online fully. To fully restore, you have to look in every part of the network where potentially that ransomware and that threat actor could have been. All of this has to be cleaned up. Each infected computer has to be cleaned up. Each network segment has to be remediated. The ransomware and any backdoors, and we'll talk a little bit more about that momentarily, have to be eradicated. If not, the risk becomes, particularly in the restoration of backups, if you have good backups, if you don't restore to what was a good, clean backup that doesn't have any potential malware engagement, malware infection, then you're reinstalling the malware, and so you'll be reinfected. And we've seen that happen previously, not just in ransomware cases, but in other cases. And it's devastating to remediate the entirety of a breach, and then be reinfected again very, very quickly. Just devastating. The more complicated the network, the higher the potential for a deeper infection, and so the more work that needs to be done. In the Norse matter, the actors had access to the network for a reasonable period of time. It wasn't a couple of days, and they locked it down. They had the opportunity to research, really uh, identify, and do good reconnaissance on that, on that network. This extended time on network allows that exploration, exploitation, and really the opportunity for an actor to really bury themselves into every accessible part of the network. There's some statistics, some studies that show in this over a period of years, the threat actor time on network, unfortunately, not positive statistics here, but the name remains pretty high. Often studies show that in the hundreds of days, a bad guy, a threat actor will have access to a network before they're found out and before the incident remediation begins. These survey, these statistics can change. The surveys change. I've seen that span from anywhere from 60 days to 200 days in a very recent study. But in the end, one day on your network from a threat actor perspective is too many days on your network. And every day that somebody's on your network, the more opportunity they have to learn more about the network and how to dig in deeper. And so again, all of those factors contribute to the deeper the actor is in the network, the more that needs to be done to ensure they are eradicated. So some particularly nefarious things that ransomware can do that highlight how effective the eradication needs to be to declare a system clean, up and running, non-impacted. Some malware, some of the ransomware that we've seen can overwrite the master boot record. So that means that if you don't catch that in your remediation, 
that inserted code, when the systems reboot and come back up, it'll immediately reinfect and all of the remediation work is lost because malware is right back, uh, puts you right back in the same thing. It can also do some really, really ugly things from your master boot record perspective. Very, very, very ugly things can happen. I talked about the backups. If they're infected and they're not caught and re a system is restored to a backup that is infected, you're restoring an infected system and it'll go right back down into a lockdown mode. Backdoors. One of the things that we see actors do, particularly the more time that they have and the more targeted of an attack there is, they'll establish backdoors into different segments. And so if a network is not adequately segmented to ensure communications are managed appropriately, bad guys will establish backdoors. Those have to be found to, again, eradicate that actor and prevent a reinfection or a secondary victimization. So there's a lot of different things that bad guys do, that hackers will do. A number of different methods that they use to embed themselves in. All of that has to be identified. All of those things have to be eliminated or there's a reinfection risk. Add to that the concept of hunting across, you know, what is a very vast network with a lot of interdependencies, third-party relationships, really, really global impact. And then you have the tens of thousands of computers that have to be remediated and eradicated. It really is a big lift. That's just a, a small perspective of some of the things, both of the way that the hackers embed and the type of activity that has to be successfully implemented to clean a network like that. One quick follow-up to you, Ron. I think you did a great job of sort of portraying just how intricate and complex in trying to isolate the ransomware and restore the network so that its original state before it was infected. How important is it to isolate that root cause of the ransomware infection, the, you know, the individual email that somebody clicked on or whatever it is that was the sort of the trigger? Root cause identification is critical to eradication. You may not always get to the point of being able to identify who actually was on the keyboard, but identifying how they infected the system is just as important. If you can't identify the specific and individual entry point, it's just as important to identify the infection process. If not, that ransomware is going to remain on the system and that reinfection will happen. Again, we may not always be able to identify who actually infected the computer, but we have to be able to identify when the system was first infected, what the entry points were so that we, we can then follow those entry points. And that's, that's really important in the process. Follow those entry points and the actions that the actor took. That helps us to then identify where they went and what they did to give us the clues, the evidence of how and where to remove them from the network. It is critical to successful eradication. So we talked about this a little bit earlier. Norsk Hydro took the extraordinary step of rebuilding its computer network. Should that approach serve as a model for all organizations on how to respond to a ransomware attack? I think if it's the only choice you have, you can take it. And I think if you are going to, your organization has made the choice during a ransomware event of rebuilding the network, this is a pretty good case study to follow in how to rebuild the network and how to prioritize. The hope is that it's a lesson or a case study that others can say, I never want to be in the position where I'm rebuilding my network. A sophisticated company that's the size of Norsk Hydro, who's planning right now for ransomware attacks, is breached all the time. Bad guys get in. It's about when the bad guy gets in, how far can they penetrate and what kind of damage can they do? And how can you reduce the sort of what Ron was saying, the time in the network? 
Here, it was about 90 days. I think they figured out the bad guy was there. and They got in through a friendly payload. It was a, a real email where the Trojans sat on the payload as an attachment. So a very sophisticated entry point with a real email. And you have, I think, as a result of that, some lessons that you can build out from it. One, you know, the importance of obviously social engineering training, but that really wouldn't have helped here. You need the electronic sort of automated detection. And then two, when the bad guy gets in the network, as they inevitably do, how do you make sure that they can't move to other segments of the network? How could you truncate the ability of someone with a certain piece of access, access credentials to then expand and touch other places and travel so they can drop these payloads throughout the organization? And then three, I think there were some external forces here, decisions they made that were very good. One, I think, was deliberate. The other was a function of there being a Norwegian company. The deliberate one is bringing in your third-party resources on the same day. The folks from Microsoft were actually boots on ground. I think they were in Hungary. They were in some other countries where they were literally there shoulder to shoulder with the company fixing the problem, prioritizing and helping. That was a big advantage. They didn't wait a week to hire the experts. And then the second is the Norwegian government supported pretty substantially this effort here. With more recent hack events in the United States, we have seen both law enforcement, like the FBI, helping companies respond to threat actors, particularly nation state actors. And we've seen non-law enforcement parts of the federal government in the U.S., like the critical infrastructure protection is a big part of that. And then there's some other parts of Homeland Security that can provide assistance that are not law enforcement in nature. Those are three things that kind of come out of this. But one lesson from a policy perspective in the U.S., I think, is the importance of developing a non-law enforcement entity like CISA in the U.S. that could help companies that are not necessarily critical infrastructure in figuring out what to do when they're faced with a ransomware. I don't think it always, often it is, but it shouldn't always be a law enforcement response to a breach like this. A lot of it could be, look, if what your company does touches the financial industry, it touches the power generation, you're going to be able to qualify for some critical infrastructure support. But there are a lot of other industries that are just as important, manufacturing, provision of sort of online software services, don't qualify for all critical infrastructure. And I think there could be something like that here that I think would help solve it a little bit more. So that's a little bit of my policy take on it. But in terms of the takeaway for our companies, bad guys are going to get in. It's what happens and how long they're allowed to stay in that's an issue. You know, some companies will hire managed security providers who will watch the network. And I tell clients, okay, if you're going to turn on a managed security platform, you are going to find something on the first day. So don't panic when it happens. So get everybody ready. Do it on a Monday. Don't do it on a Friday. And, you know, make sure that you've got your incident playbook ready because the minute you turn that on, they're going to find some node that's running out to some bad place in Eastern Europe and they got to be prepared for it. It's not about stopping the criminals from breaking into your house. It's keeping them in the foyer when they break in and not letting them get into the safe that's upstairs. So, you know, I think we've mentioned this several times. It really only takes potentially one suspicious email open to unleash a ransomware attacker onto your network. So what steps should organizations be taking to limit the damage resulting from somebody clicking on a malicious email? In general, good practice, good hygiene, good culture, these are all important to helping to prevent that damage. It's not just about prevention, but it's also about response during the potential event itself. And there are a number of things that an organization can do. We've talked about this previously, but training, really ensuring that the first line of defense is prepared and educated, but also that reduces stress and it provides ability and empowers them to respond better 
during an actual event. Train them on how what the evolving threat looks like, good current information, so that they see how it's changing. This helps to contribute to that uh, overall prevention and, again, empowers them as individuals in an organization. A backup plan, having a good, solid, well-rehearsed, well-practiced, well-understood backup plan that is considered a ransomware. So not just backups and then stored on site, stored on network, but having backups that take into the context that the evolution of ransomware has been now to infect those backups. That's the new malware ransomware uh, threat actors use, infects the backups, but it specifically targets the backups to make it that much harder. So having really good backup plans in that context. Is it a response plan? But not just the plan, but the tools, techniques, professionals, the relationships established in advance to ensure that at time of a critical event, things are ready to go. The team is capable. They have the resources to remediate or prevent additional damage at time of attack and to ensure the appropriate recovery. Auditing, watching the network, you know, managed service providers, auditing, logging. These are great capabilities and provide really good insight into a network, into the potentially bad things that could be happening on a network. But you really have to watch those, monitor those, and be on top of those. There are additional controls that can be implemented to prevent different types of activity from macros launching in email to the ability to click on links and go to the internet, a host of different things. I mentioned previously email tools to filter on uh, suspicious items. We also mentioned segmenting the network. And I've mentioned this also, but it's critically important patching and updating all the systems, software, applications. Everything that we use needs to be patched, updated, and kept as current as we can possibly make it. All of these things together in a combined unified effort will help to minimize the amount of potential damage that a threat actor can cause if and when an attack occurs, a successful attack. Just one note on that is that if I'm meeting a client and I'm talking to somebody from the legal department, I'm a lawyer, so I don't know the technology the way you do, Ron. But one question that I once saw asked, and I now ask it because I saw someone very smart ask it is, okay, this is your sock. It's got very cool, like computers everywhere. And it's got these cool LED screens and all this. I want to see you the oldest computer you have in the building. I remember when I, I saw this happen the first time, I was like, this is amazing. What a great question. Because it's that oldest computer that is no longer supported that some bad guy will find. So if it's not coming in on a sophisticated phishing email, they're going to figure out that it has some unpatched, you know, Windows 95 in the basement. Right. A piggyback question on that. And we've, we've asked this routinely in maturity assessments. A piggyback question there is, when was the last time that you just ran a scan of your network to enumerate the things that are hanging off because you as the SOC, as the IT and security professionals, may not know what someone has attached to the network, thereby attaching additional potential risks? Definitely part of the whole, that holistic nature of looking at the, uh, the potential problem and the environment. So hacker organizations are just terrifying, shadowy sources of anxiety for audit committees and the board and leadership. Another scary faction is the plaintiff's bar, because the potential consequence of being a victim of a ransomware attack is a loss of investor confidence and a corresponding drop in share price and market capitalization which then unleashes the hounds of the plaintiff's bar to you know, bring these class action suits. Amazingly, Norsk Hydro stock really didn't take a significant hit, despite it being the victim of Norway's largest ever cyber attack. What is it about Norsk Hydro's response to the ransomware that appears to have protected its share price? It's amazing. I mean, I think we've seen the history of public company data breaches. And, you know, in the early days, stock price moved a lot. 
upon the announcement. And I think as investors began to realize that this is happening to everyone, and you can pretty much price out at least large-scale consumer data breaches, data breaches that affect thousands or millions of records, that risk has sort of been absorbed by the market, and the market doesn't tend to react in extraordinary ways. But we have seen the other kind of breach, which is what we're talking about, these operation side attacks through ransomware payloads. So if you shut down a business, that can have an impact on stock price even today. But for Norsk Hydro, it didn't. And I think there's a lot of public reporting on this. And I think that the sort of general thesis has, has a couple of parts to it. But the first is they have a culture of transparency. I think that's what Ron said. And so what the stock price is reflecting isn't, okay, are they not going to be able to meet quarterly earnings? But is this the company that we thought it was yesterday? Is it being that company today? And it looks as if the way they handled the incident response was consistent with what everyone thought about them. Right? They're a company that's going to tell you like it is. They're going to give you frequent updates. You're going to know what they know when they know it. And because they didn't change their culture in the way they approached the incident, I think that had a pretty substantial part of it. Two, and this is my sort of own theory about this, is that in a way, they're too big to fail. And what I mean by that is they're, by revenue, I think the second or third largest entity based in Norway uh, in terms of a public company. And they immediately got out there and had the support of the government's response team associated with Microsoft. And I think the idea that everyone was, we're going to take our money out of them, we're going to stop investing in them, and where are we going to put it, right? This is not a company that's going to go away. Now, of those two things, one, they're showing in their incident response that they're the company they always were. That's something that every company right now can do. You can make that a part of your incident response guide. You can repeat that. The second part, being too good to fail and kind of having the right speakers at the time you announce it, that's a little bit harder for other public companies in other postures to reproduce. Some of the techniques that I've seen that have worked here is if you are a critical infrastructure entity, right? if you're a financial services firm or if you produce power or if you're involved in the defense industry, have your messaging reinforce that which is data security. It's as important to us as it is to you. We're in the business of data security. And so that's why we're telling you now and not waiting. There are ways you can frame your messaging so that it can help with that. And I think as a strategic and a tactical, so that's the strategic part of it. And how tactically do you do that? When you're putting together your messaging for the incident response, it shouldn't just be the CFO, the chief information security officer, and the risk officer. It should also be your chief marketing officer. It should also be your inside and outside media relations folks and your government relations folks, because everyone's going to bring a different skill set here. The idea of doing these daily briefings that Norse Kydra did was absolutely brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And I think that was at the core of it. Some very smart person must have said, we got to do these briefings. If we're going on transparency, let's go all in. Let's do it the way we want to do it. And I think that was a, a very sort of cool way of dealing with it for U.S. companies that are public and have these incidents two pieces of advice to avoid shareholder lawsuits. One is no lies. And then the other is no mismanagement. And that's true both before the breach and after the breach. The idea of if the stock price does move and it moves on a cybersecurity event for a group of shareholders to sue, they need to show a lie that was proven true by the incident. And so if you're out there saying we have best in class cybersecurity and you put that in your public disclosures, and you don't have best-in-class cybersecurity, well, then don't say you have best-in-class cybersecurity, because then if there's an incident and the stock price moves, you're going to get sued. If you don't have best-in-class security, say, we face risks relating to cybersecurity. We comply with the law, period. Leave it at that. Don't go beyond it and try to score marketing points in your public disclosures. Make sure that they're, in fact, true. Don't just copy from what others are doing. Fly spec them yourself.
like hanging fake security cameras outside your building. Or if you haven't been ISO certified, don't put that on your emails. So there's a part of that. You can say annually we do penetration testing. That's a truthful statement. You can say that. But don't say best in class if it's not best in class. Sometimes I'll get first drafts from a client of letters that they want to send out after a breach, and it will say all that stuff. And I'm not going to redline it. We'll have a call, and I'll say, okay, what's the basis for the statement that you have best in class cybersecurity? And they kind of hem and haw, and the kind of position that I'll say after that is, okay, that's the first question you're going to get from an analyst. That's the first question you're going to get from a newspaper reporter. You're going to get these questions. You can't write that if it's not true. And if it's true, you better have a nice stack of things that you have that say it, that you're ready to push across that table to give to a regulator or to give to a plaintiff's attorney who's investigating the incident. Another important point you make of crisis communications as an extension of crisis management planning, who's fronting the press and what are they going to say? Because I think we've all seen horrifying examples of someone just winging it in front of a, a room full of reporters and the situation went from bad to worse really quickly just based on not thinking through what these public comments should sound like. That leadership in culture can really instill confidence in the response. That leadership transparency and willingness to take on all of those challenges and address them in a direct way can really instill confidence in that response in uh, both the organization, its shareholders, and the public. Very, very important and often overlooked, particularly the organizations that have been up till that point blessed where they haven't had a major incident. So it's not something that they had to think about. And it sort of goes back to the, the wisdom of planning for the storm on a sunny day, just thinking through how will we go about handling ourselves when, when things are not going particularly well. So. Norse Hydro's CIO was one of the executives that was sort of out front in this whole incident as it was playing out in a very public way. And he described cybersecurity as asymmetrical warfare in which companies have to execute their cybersecurity protocols perfectly every day. And yet a cyber attacker just needs to be lucky once, which is, you know, really a great way, I think, of describing how daunting a task it is and, and the enormity of it. So what is it about the Norse Hydro Matter that every organization should really seek to assimilate into their approach to securing their networks? I think that that context is an accurate perception feeling for most people in cybersecurity. The bad guys only have to get it right once and then they can exploit that. For us, we have to get it right all the time. And Jack has made this point earlier in our discussion, and I, I think it's important to highlight when we talk about this, the answer to this, if we're doing things in advance of potential attack, we don't necessarily have to be right every single time, but we have to prepare. We, we got to be prepared for the response. And so I would say if in answer to that, the things that we can do, that approach should be proactive, preventative, and defensive. We have to have a plan. We have to practice that plan. We have to establish relationships in advance, both internal to the organization, because uh, lack of communication internal to an organization can complicate response just as much as external. External to the organization, whether it's regulatory, it's law enforcement, it's government, but also private sector, having the right responders, having the right support network for applications, for hardware, for software, for third parties of critical importance, third parties, particularly third parties who have a trusted relationship. And so direct access into, into your network, having all of these relationships established in advance, good lines of communication established in advance, 
and practice these things. It's not something that is a wait till the critical event happens. It really is about being proactive and establishing both the right practices, the right policies, the right perspective, and that right culture, the correct culture about being proactive in accountability for this type of risk. That's how you reduce this risk is to be proactive and really, really invest. And I, I agree with the point that was made earlier of this is a top-down situation. And so these investments need to be owned and are accountable from the entirety of the top of the corporate ladder that really genuinely establishes the solid investment both internally and externally in the cybersecurity planning and programming. What I love about this, the Norse Hydra matter, it almost sounds like, like a hypothetical or a thought experiment, but it was real. This is every company's worst scenario, a need to entirely shut down everything and having no access to the data. And it really happened. And so, but the other side of it is it's a worst day scenario, but they got through it. They got through it. They were okay. They came up with a plan. They figured it out. They responded to it and they did it in a transparent way so we can sort of study it and think about it. So I think the real thought experiment shouldn't be this idea that a lot of managers have, which is, well, that worst day is either not going to happen or if it happens, it'll be so bad that whatever, you know, the plane went down, we're done. And I think the real thought experiment should be, okay, if all the computers in our organization went down, what would we do? What would we really do, right? Do we have backup phone numbers? We do. All of our key clients' numbers are on our cell phones. Our cell phones are segmented. We could at least call our top 10. In the first day, we would call our top 10 customers and talk to them. The next day, we'd call our top 10 suppliers and we'd talk to them. We'd also have somebody reach out to law enforcement. We'd also have all hands on deck meetings at our offices where we don't have remote workers. And then you start to think, okay, well, if we could do those three things, what could we do on day four, day five, day six? And suddenly, you have the beginnings of a plan. And so I think while it starts with a sort of worst case scenario that almost sounds like an example that you'd study in a, in a class somewhere in management, as you unpack it and you really turn and face that difficult thing, you come up with bullet points that could be written down and put into a plan. So I think that's what I like about it. And I think that's the takeaway is for the risk executives who are listening to this, right? That's the thought experiment. If the very worst thing happened and we couldn't get at any of our data, what would we do? And force yourself to write down on a single sheet of paper like 10 things you would do. And then I think, wow, you probably pick seven of those things, reorder them. And in a couple of hours, you could have the start to a plan that would get you through it. Because again, it happened to Norse Hydro. The worst day they could have happened and they got through it. And that should be really empowering to anybody who lives with fraud, who lives with risk, who lives with the threat of really bad things happening, is that the worst happened and they got through it. Well, guys, this has been a really interesting conversation very instructive case study to go through and and you guys really provided some tremendous insights and thank you both for for coming on it was a pleasure thank you for having me yeah thank you scott and thank you ron take care guys that was carlton fields partner jack clabby and fti senior managing director ron yearwood this concludes this episode of fraudy strategy i'm scott moritz senior managing director and fti consultants risk and investigations practice Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraudy Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fti.consulting.com. Thanks for listening.